Section 25 of A Brief History of Forestry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. A Brief History of Forestry by Bernard Fernauer. Section 25. Canada. The largest single colony of Great Britain, and the most important as regards forest supplies, both as to quantity and character, Canada has been for a long time supplying the mother country with a large proportion of her imports. Although in size larger than the United States, its land area being estimated at over 3,600,000 square miles, Canada has so far attained only one-fifteenth of the population of her neighbor, namely less than seven million, although now rapidly growing. Much of her territory is still unknown, and will remain for a long time unavailable for civilization, owing to its inhospitable climate. Indeed, as yet not one-third of its territory may be considered opened up to civilization, and not much more than one hundred thousand square miles can be said to be occupied one half improved in farms and two-thirds of this in crops much of the northern country remains unorganized and the vast northwest territory two million six hundred and fifty six thousand square miles between hudson's bay and the rocky mountains as well as labrador are for the most part uninhabited except by indians and a few military and trading posts the central interior region dotted with lakes and intricate river systems is a continuation of the forestless arid and sub-arid plains and prairies of the country west of the mississippi river toward the north changing by steps into lowlands studded with open tree growth and barren tundra frozen all the year a million square miles answering to this last description the pacific slope is a rough and lofty mountain country the extension of the rockies and coast ranges with a variable in part humid and temperate in part dry and rigorous climate more or less heavily wooded about six hundred thousand square miles with the fraser river in the south forming the most important drainage basin the atlantic portion south of the plateau-like bare or scantily wooded hudson bay and labrador country with a climate somewhat similar to northeastern germany is formed by the slopes of the watersheds of the great lakes and their mighty outlet the st lawrence river and its gulf the slopes rising gradually northward to the low range of the height of the land a plateau with low hills not over fifteen hundred feet elevation which cuts it off from the northern country and forms the limit of commercial forests this region the bulk of square miles with ninety three thousand square miles in the maritime provinces around two hundred and fifty million acres in all represents outside of british columbia the true forest region of canada and at the same time the center of canadian civilization although the cabot brothers discovered cape breton and labrador in fourteen ninety seven and fifteen hundred the first settlement of canadian territory was not made until fifteen forty one by french colonists after the first captain-general of canada jacques cartier the discoverer and explorer of the st lawrence in fifteen thirty four had taken possession of the country for francis i but not much progress in colonizing was made until champlain's arrival in the first years of the next century quebec was founded as early as sixteen o eight and Montreal in 1611, but Ottawa dates its first beginnings not farther back than 1800. The northern country around Hudson's Bay was, under the name of Rupert's Land, after Prince Rupert, the head of the enterprise, undefined in limits, granted by Charles II in 1670 to the Hudson's Bay Company, a powerful fur-trading corporation which had not only a commercial monopoly, but except for occasional interference by the French, held absolute governmental sway over the country through two hundred years, its jurisdiction at one time extending to the Pacific coast. Friction and warfare with the English resulted in the latter acquiring by the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, Newfoundland, and settling their rights on Hudson's Bay, 
the final conquest of new france by the english ended french rule in seventeen sixty three but the french colonists remained peacefully and their descendants form today at least in quebec the predominating influence indeed in seventeen seventy four by the so-called quebec act the first permanent system of self-government was established much on the lines of the french feudal system and the french civil law was retained at first under english rule the territory then including the states of ohio indiana illinois michigan wisconsin and minnesota formed one colony but after the war of the revolution in seventeen ninety one the territory remaining english was divided into two separately governed provinces upper and lower or west and east canada they were reunited in eighteen forty and continued so until eighteen sixty seven when the so-called union or british north america act effected the present organization of the dominion of canada a federal union comprising only the provinces of ontario quebec new brunswick and nova scotia after various combinations and subdivisions all of the british possessions in north america except newfoundland and its dependencies in labrador came into the union and in eighteen eighty two the union was completed with the then seven provinces those mentioned with prince edward island manitoba and british columbia and all the organized and unorganized territory in the same year four territories Isonobia, saskatchewan alberta and athabasca in eighteen ninety five the territory of ungava in labrador and in eighteen ninety eight that of yukon were organized with a view of their eventual elevation into provinces the relations of the federation being quite similar to that of the states and territories in the united states in nineteen o five the western territories were organized into two provinces saskatchewan and alberta the government although practically much like a republic and largely independent of the home country is theoretically a limited monarchy the king being represented by a governor-general appointed by the king and a privy council selected by the governor the latter also appoints now eighty-one senators for life to form the upper house of the parliament or legislative body while the lower house of commons is elected by the people besides this imperial government each province has its own separate government with a lieutenant governor appointed by the governor-general and an elected legislature this autonomy being somewhat similar to that of the states of the united states and the division of functions between federal and provincial governments being also similar although the home government retains the veto power the supreme jurisdiction and various other powers although apparently by the appointment of officials its influence is guarded practically the party management as exercised in great britain prevails and independence from imperial influence and from home government is continually increasing in regard to the crown lands including forests this division as well as this relationship becomes important each provincial government except those of the three middle provinces administers the crownlands within its boundaries in its own way yet on similar lines while the dominion government controls only the lands located outside of the provinces together with those of the middle provinces and the so-called railway belt in british columbia these latter lands were mostly acquired by purchase from the hudson's bay company the company relinquishing its territorial rights in eighteen sixty eight and the transfer being completed in eighteen seventy upon payment of three hundred thousand pounds one forest conditions the forest area has at various times and by various authorities been roughly estimated as between one and a quarter of over one and three-quarter million square miles which would make the forest percent at least over thirty-two but this includes the open woodlands of the northern territory and of the prairies which while of great importance to the local settlers are for the most part probably or surely not of commercial value commercially valuable forests actually or prospectively are found almost only in british columbia and in the old provinces the two forest regions separated just as in the united states by a forestless region except that north of the prairie region a continuous belt of open woodland extends to near the mouth of the mackenzie river 
a careful examination of the sources of information has led the writer to the conclusion that less than three hundred and fifty thousand square miles or around two hundred million acres would cover fully the commercially valuable forest land although the wooded area of the provinces in which the commercial timber occurs is stated officially as around four hundred and fifty million acres two-fifths of which is to be found in british columbia indeed although we are accustomed to look upon canada as a great forest country it really possesses about sixty per cent less commercial forest than the united states and about one quarter of the mature timber of that country it will be understood that all such statistics are merely rough estimates the data being slim and eked out by conjectures based on geographical conditions which predicate the character of the country most unreasonable speculations and calculations as to the amount of timber standing and value have been made on impossible assumptions as an instance one statistician by mere mathematical figuring namely deducting the known crop and pasture area from the total land area would make the forest area of quebec alone over two hundred and nine million acres this includes the country north of the height of land of one hundred and sixty three million acres which by another mathematical calculation is made to be able to furnish over sixty five billion feet of lumber besides over six hundred million cords of pulpwood and three hundred and seventy million railroad ties but under present conditions owing to topography and character of the timber it cannot be utilized and its commercial value is altogether problematic this calculation would leave as really or potentially available forest land south of the height of land forty six million acres in addition to over five million on farms it is claimed that this forest area may still produce some one hundred billion feet of coniferous and one point five billion feet of hardwoods or twenty five hundred feet to the acre the chief of the provincial forest service lately made the forest area of the province one hundred and thirty one million acres including two million acres of waste land while by the change of standards and by local needs forest areas may become commercially valuable which were not so considered before and thereby the above figures may be eventually increased from the standpoint of valuable lumber supply for the world trade the above-named area may be assumed to set the limit for the present a computation based on slender information has placed the country with open woodlands in the central region as exceeding two hundred and eighty thousand square miles the director of forestry estimated that one hundred and fifty thousand square miles of this area might contain nearly two hundred billion feet merchantable lumber the southeastern territory south of the height of land was originally all densely wooded from it a farm area of around twenty five million acres has been cut out less than seven per cent of the land area included especially the southwestern half of ontario between the great lakes which contains the most fertile land is densely settled as also the shores of the st lawrence a large part of the remaining forest area is cut over and culled especially for pine the amount of white pine remaining according to estimates made in eighteen ninety five would now be less than twenty billion feet extensive areas have been turned into semi-barrens by repeated fires the statistician of the dominion in his report made in that year comes to the conclusion that the first quality pine has nearly disappeared and that we are within measurable distance of time when the exception of spruce as to wood and of british columbia as to provinces canada shall cease to be a wood exporting country the composition in general is the same as that of the northern forest in the united states hardwoods birch maple and elm prevailing with conifers mixed the latter especially spruce becoming occasionally pure the nearly pure hardwood forest of the southern ontario peninsula has been almost entirely supplanted by farms and here even for domestic fuel coal imported from the united states is largely substituted for wood although white pine the most important staple is found in all parts of this forest region the best and largest supplies are now confined to the northern region north of georgian bay 
unopened spruce and fir land still abound especially in quebec on the gaspe peninsula and northward spruce forms also the largest share in the composition of the new brunswick nova scotia and newfoundland forest the pine in the first two provinces having practically been cut out extensive almost pure balsam fir forest fit for pulpwood still covers the plateau of cape breton while prince edward island is to the extent sixty per cent cleared for agricultural use much of this eastern forest area is not only culled of its best timber but burnt over and thereby deteriorated in its composition the inferior balsam fir appearing in largest number in the reproduction north of the height of land in ungava and westward spruce continues to timberline but outside of narrow belts following the river valleys only an open stand branchy and stunted hardly fit even for pulp for the most part with birch and aspen intermixed this open spruce forest interspersed among muskegs continues more or less to the northern tundra and across the continent to within a few miles of the mouth of the mackenzie river and the arctic ocean the white spruce being the most northern species in the interior northern prairie belt groves of aspen dense and well developed skirt the water courses and form an important wood supply the forests of british columbia partake of the character of the pacific forest of the united states the coast range along the coast for about two hundred miles being stocked with conifers of magnificent development douglas fir giant arbivitae hemlock bull pine and a few others the rocky mountain range also of coniferous growth pine and larch but of inferior character large areas being covered with alpine fir abis labiascarpa and lodgepole pine important as soil cover and for local use in the mining districts but lacking in commercial value if much of the forest area in the settled provinces is burnt over and damaged by forest fire much more extensive destruction is wrought in this northern forest by fires sweeping annually over millions of acres unchecked many of them said to be started by lightning about fifty per cent of this country is said to be fire swept among the large notable forest fires the great miramichi fire in new brunswick in eighteen twenty five destroyed more than six thousand square miles in a few hours in eighteen eighty the loss by forest fires in the ottawa valley alone was still estimated at five million dollars annually in nineteen o nine reports indicate over half a million acres burnt over in that year the river systems of eastern canada with the mighty st lawrence permitting sea-going vessels to come up to montreal have been most potent factors in the development of the lumber industry and export trade without the need of railroads yet although as a consequence this trade was early developed to a relatively large figure it has not grown at as a rapid rate as might have been expected and today, with an export in excess of imports of less than forty million dollars is considerably below that of the united states the small export trade of earlier times having been stimulated by exempting canadian timber from paying duties in the home country or at least allowing it a preferential tariff had by eighteen twenty grown to fifteen million cubic feet all squared timber and sent to england in 1830 it had crept up to only 20 million cubic feet but by 1850 it amounted to over 50 million cubic feet two-fifths of which was sawed material the 2632 mills being reported by the census 1851 as having cut 776 million feet bm by 1867 when the dominion was formed the total export of forest products had advanced in value to 18 million the next decade with a climax year in 1873 of 26 million saw an increase to 20 million dollars in the average the proportion of sawn material being nearly three times that of hewn wood and the entire cut of ontario going to the united states at that time it was computed that the waste of value in shipping square timber amounted for the province of ontario alone still to over three hundred and fifty thousand dollars annually at present sawed lumber deals boards planks etc 
form 70% of the total export. In the last 20 years, a steady increase in exports at an average rate of about 3% per annum is noted, the total in 1903 culminating at nearly 41 million, but in the following year sinking to 36.7 million. In 1910, the total export amounted to 53 million, against which an import of nearly 16 million is to be offset, nearly double what it was three years before. Adding wood manufactures, the net export must be increased by some 36 million. The bulk of the export goes, of course, to the United States, but while exports of forest products thus increased absolutely, relatively to other exports, they have considerably declined, i.e. the lumber industry has not grown proportionately to other developments. For a while, in 1868, forest products form 34% of the total export. In 1904, they represented only about half that figure. The same conclusion, namely that the lumber business has not increased rapidly in the last 25 years, may be derived from the report of the decennial census. Well, for 1890, the total cut amounted to over 5 billion feet, and its value to nearly 80 million. In 1900, the cut, or at least the census report, fell below 4 billion, and its value to 53 million. In 1909, the total lumber cut was reported as 3.8 billion feet BM, and its value 62.8 million. A measure of the depletion of the great staple white pine is found in the statement that from 1865 to 1893, the average size of pieces decreased by one quarter to one third, and that in 1863, over 23 million cubic feet were exported from Quebec as against 1.5 million feet in 1904. Well, the price had more than quadrupled in that period. Spruce has here taken the place of pine, and Ontario is now the main producer of pine. Yet in 1909, the white pine cut in amount almost equaled that of spruce, and in value exceeded it by 40%. Spruce, and especially pulpwood, forms an ever-increasing item in cut and export, export of pulpwood having increased sevenfold in the last decade to nearly two million, and of wood pulp to over four million. A notable economic improvement has taken place during the last ten or fifteen years in that the proportion of raw materials exported, especially logs and square timber, has decreased in favor of manufacturers. While originally the home country took the bulk of exports of forest products, the cut of Ontario has been always, duty or no duty, sent almost entirely to the United States. In the last six or eight years, the export to the United States has been doubled, amounting now to about half of the total export, and as the state's return of its own forest products largely in the form of manufactures to the extent of about $6 million worth. A balance of trade for the Canadian forest product of $12 million is left. 2. Ownership When the French took possession of the country, all the land belonged to the king, and could be held by others only under feudal tenure, i.e. as a gift under obligation of counter-service. The whole country was placed as a fief under the rule of the Hundred Associates, a company which also exercised a trading and colonizing monopoly, but made no success and was dissolved in 1663. It was then that Richelieu introduced the system of signarial tenure, the land being divided into portions of from 100 to 500 square miles, usually with a small amount of riverfront, and given outright to younger noblemen, favorites of the court, and clerics, who were, however, obligated to subgrant to colonists, thereby becoming so many immigration agents. These not only treated their colonists as tenants, exacting rent and service, but exercised nearly absolute jurisdiction within their domains, the colonists becoming virtually serfs or retainers of the seigneurs. This condition continued until 1854, when an adjustment of rights was formulated by the Signoral Tenures Act, and the government aided the habitants to secure their freedom 
by indemnifying the seigneurs or else by paying rent which was done mostly under english rule the granting of lands without however the seigneurial rights was continued in seventeen eighty four such grants were made along the st lawrence and the bay of quinte to veterans of the loyalist army some twenty thousand in lots of two hundred acres for privates up to five thousand acres for field officers in seventeen ninety one every seventh section was ordered to be set aside as clergy reserves for the support of the protestant church a measure which created much friction and formed especially in the roman catholic province of quebec a chief grievance in starting the pepineux rebellion of eighteen thirty seven some three million three hundred thousand acres were gradually withdrawn for this purpose and as far as possible leased to secure an income some of these lands were sold after eighteen twenty seven and finally in eighteen fifty three a statute was passed to sell the remainder and turn over the proceeds to municipalities for educational purposes and local improvement extensive grants and sales were made to lumbermen and speculators in this manner by the granting of thirteen thousand acres to an american philemon wright in eighteen hundred the great lumber industry of ottawa was started and in eighteen thirty six another american syndicate secured about a million acres of grants out of the fifty million acres granted in aid of railroad construction some portion must also have been in timber by all these methods as well as by small grants and sales to settlers a large area of uncertain extent has become private property in nova scotia nearly the entire government domain has passed by grant and sale into private hands some six million acres one-half in small holdings of the lands remaining in the crown at least two-thirds is on barrens similarly in prince edward island the eight hundred square miles of woodland remaining are almost wholly owned privately the fourteen thousand acres of state land being like most of the private property stripped of its value in new brunswick over one point six million acres mostly woodland containing over ten billion feet was granted to the railway company and another million acres or so is in other private possession a liberal disposal of lands having been continued until eighteen eighty three when about seven and a quarter million acres of timber and wasteland remained to the crown in quebec some six million acres are estimated as privately owned mostly in woodlots on farms in ontario the private woodland area of commercial character may be over five million acres besides the large grants which were and still are probably to the greatest extent in timberlands the farms in the various provinces according to the census of nineteen o one have from twenty two to fifty seven per cent in woodlots or altogether probably in the neighborhood of thirty million acres the total area privately owned may then be placed at not to exceed say forty million acres and the largest part of the forest area is still crown lands the government of the different provinces and the dominion government in the territory and in the middle provinces administering them and deriving the revenue therefrom this condition has prevailed since eighteen thirty seven when the home government gave up its claim to land and revenues the provincial ownership extends over about five hundred thousand square miles the dominion government owns an area of twenty thousand square miles in the railway belt of british columbia twenty miles on each side of the railway for five hundred miles which contains good timber and some seven hundred and twenty two thousand square miles of land in the middle provinces which contains practically only timber suitable for local use three administration of timberlands in the development of ownership conditions the realization of the valuable assets in timber growth had not been overlooked by the home government care of supplies for naval construction giving as in the united states the first incentive to a conservative forest policy even under the early french rule the grants of land were made under reservation of the oak timber fit for naval use as is evidenced from a land grant made in sixteen eighty three 
this reservation led to considerable friction as it hampered the colonists in making their clearings on the best lands later the reservation was extended to include other timber needed for military purposes and when the british occupation began these established rights of the crown were not only continued but reservations of larger areas for the timber were ordered notably around and north of lake champlain in seventeen sixty three and again in seventeen seventy five the home government ordered reservations to be set aside in every township but the great timber wealth seemed so inexhaustible that the governors paid little attention to the wise instructions of the home government for the creation of reservations and whatever regulations regarding the cutting of timber were made failed to be strictly enforced in seventeen eighty nine the policy of reserving to the crown all the timber as far as not granted and giving licenses to cut was inaugurated but not until eighteen twenty six was even the revenue feature strongly enough realized to attempt systematically to secure the benefit of it namely by allowing anyone to cut timber such as was not required for the navy who would pay a fixed rate for what was cut a surveyor-general of woods and forests being appointed to collect the timber dues with the aid of qualified colors eighteen eleven there was even an attempt made to prevent waste by doubling the rate of timber dues on all trees cut which would not square more than eight inches this restriction probably remained a dead letter for lack of supervision lumbermen however found it cheaper to buy the land making only part payment and after cutting the best timber forfeiting the land contractors who had the monopoly for cutting the timber for the royal navy cut also for their own account corruption and graft pervaded the administration which enriched its followers with the revenues obtained from the timber licenses and otherwise the strong hand which in the absence of a strong government lumbermen were driven to use in order to protect themselves from piracy by their neighbors or else to perpetrate such brought about many bloody conflicts the general maladministration of the so-called family compact besides other grievances caused the revolution of eighteen thirty seven which although readily put down led to the union of the provinces of upper and lower canada in eighteen forty one and to reform of the abuses it was then that after the new governor-general lord durham's admirable report on the situation the home government turned over the administration in part at least and revenues of the crown lands to the several provincial governments at that time in new brunswick where a thriving export trade had been early established the dues on two million dollars worth of production were involved and in quebec and ontario the income amounted to between two hundred thousand and three hundred thousand dollars but even then the immediate revenue and not any concern for its continuation animated the administration of the public or crown forests the freehand sales for nominal sums were changed into licenses to cut and in order to secure larger returns these were by and by put up at auction for competitive bids the premium or bonus being paid for the limits i e a limited territory on which the holder or licensee had the exclusive right to cut in addition to the fixed dues or charges per unit for the timber actually cut later to discourage the holding of timber limits for a rise of prices an annual cut of first one thousand then five hundred feet per square mile of holdings was required to still further accelerate the use of the licenses to cut the crown timber act of eighteen forty nine limited the license to one year and provided for an eventual limit in size of the grants all these provisions forced to more rapid cutting and overproduction and depression in the lumber market was the result the supply in eighteen forty seven being forty four million feet to meet an export of nineteen million new rules were promulgated in eighteen fifty one introducing a ground rent system a set price being paid per square mile of limit and doubling the ground rent for unused limits each year needless to say the impracticability of this geometric progression in ground rents became visible in a few years 
the final present system in the disposal of timber limits varying in detail were gradually perfected in varying manner by the several provincial governments but they agree in general principles in that they grant limits for a certain time some by the year others by periods usually twenty-one years during which certain conditions as to establishment of mills and amount of manufacture without waste must be fulfilled and a ground rent a bonus and timber dues for all timber cut are to be paid by the limit holder details and prices varying and being changed from time to time a diameter limit below which trees are not to be cut also mostly prevails lately sales by the thousand feet bm have been inaugurated in ontario and sale by the mile is to be abandoned as a rule licenses become negotiable and can be transferred upon paying a small fee per square mile the governments reserving absolute rights to change conditions of this contract at any time the interest of the licensee is to cut as fast as he can other unsatisfactory conditions leading in the same direction a department of crown lands in the dominion government and in each province in nova scotia the attorney-general acting as head administers the lands scalers or colors attend to the measuring of the cut the revenue derived by this system by all the provinces amounts now to around four point five million dollars per year ontario leading with about twenty thousand square miles now under license mostly pine producing in nineteen ten one million eight hundred and thirty five thousand dollars the yearly average for the decade ending nineteen ten was one and three quarter million dollars and some forty one million dollars have altogether accrued since eighteen sixty seven quebec with over seventy thousand square miles under license mostly in spruce producing only about seven hundred thousand dollars nearly thirty million dollars having accrued during the forty three years or at the rate of four hundred and eighteen dollars per square mile two-thirds of which from dues since land settlement is as in the united states obtainable by homestead and other entries a good many fraudulent applications under guise of settlement have curtailed the revenue until now closer scrutiny of the fitness of land for settlement is made the retention of the lands by the government is naturally a feature which would permit and should have earlier induced conservative forestry methods but the immediate revenue interest has had and still has a more potent influence than considerations of the future four development of forest policy the impetus to introduce conservative features seems to have largely come through the influence of the forestry movement in the united states and although voices of prominent canadians like that of james and william little and sir henry joly de l'opiniere have been heard before in advocacy of a more far-seeing policy the meeting of the american forestry congress at montreal in eighteen eighty two may be set as the date of the inception of this movement in canada the definite result of that meeting was the inauguration of forest fire legislation in the various provinces in the province of ontario the fire act of eighteen seventy eight which had until then remained a dead letter was improved in eighteen eighty five by inaugurating a fire ranger system in which limit holders pay one-half the cost of the rangers the force of firefighters thirty-seven in the first year was gradually increased until in nineteen ten nearly one thousand were employed at a cost of three hundred thousand dollars in that year a change was made the whole service including inspection being charged against the limit holder in new brunswick a fire law was passed in eighteen eighty five followed in eighteen ninety seven by the introduction of the ontario ranger system in eighteen eighty three nova scotia passed a forest fire law which like that of new brunswick remained ineffective for lack of machinery this was not provided until nineteen o four and since then has worked most satisfactorily recently a forest survey of this province was made quebec also enacted fire legislation in eighteen eighty three but did not provide means to carry it into effect until eighteen eighty nine 
since at first only five thousand dollars annually was allowed for its execution and by nineteen o one to two not more than seven thousand two hundred and twenty six dollars was expended for fire protection over an area of forty million acres its effectiveness may be doubted but in nineteen o five a special forest protection branch with a superintendent and a ranger system after the ontario pattern was organized and the service has become more effective the need for more organized effort and advice led to the establishment of special bureaus of forestry in ontario a clerk of forestry was established in the department of agriculture in eighteen eighty three and in eighteen ninety five he was replaced by a clerk in the crown lands department later named director of forestry mr thomas southworth this office later was changed to a bureau of forestry and colonization and a technically educated man was appointed as provincial forester with a view of developing a forest management at least in the reserves this movement however soon collapsed for lack of appreciation the office was transferred back to the department of agriculture which does not control any timberlands the forester resigned and the bureau was finally in nineteen o seven restricted to the colonization work the forestry part being deliberately abandoned meanwhile the province of quebec pursued a more enlightened course to control the cut a colors office was established in eighteen forty two which however only checked the square timber then the principal material in eighteen seventy three after various futile attempts to secure better supervision a corps of forest rangers was created but as they worked without organization the results were only partial until in eighteen eighty nine they were placed under seven chiefs or superintendents in eighteen ninety seven the number of superintendents were reduced to one but having to work with incompetent men political appointees this improvement in headship did not produce much result in nineteen o seven a reorganization took place by introducing two professional foresters educated at government's expense at american colleges of forestry who upon their return were employed to supply the technical supervision of cutting unlicensed lands and otherwise to forward forestry reforms in nineteen ten the logical sequence occurred by placing the entire forest service except the protection against fire under one of these technical men as chief with the other one as his assistant and a corps of three civil engineers forty forest rangers and six scalers besides twenty student assistants the first organized provincial forest service in canada administered under the superintendent of woods and forests in the department of crown lands in eighteen ninety eight the dominion government had also recognized the need of more technical administration by instituting a forestry branch in the department of the interior under a superintendent with a view of developing improved methods at first manned without technical advisers who were indeed not in existence gradually the professional element was introduced and the scope of the branch enlarged the irrigation interests of the country being added under the able guidance of the present director whose task under the political conditions surrounding is not an easy one this department may in a few years also become fully organized with technical men of whom there are now seventeen employed besides student assistants these various government agencies and other propaganda produced at least the important result of committing the governments to see the propriety of setting aside permanent forest reserves the first movement in this direction was made in eighteen ninety three and in eighteen ninety five the first dominion reservations were made by executive order through the minister of the interior these to be sure were located in the thinly timbered parts of the province of manitoba the turtle mountains and riding mountain mainly for the protection of water supply several other similar reserves were set aside by the minister but to give more stability to these reservations an act of parliament was passed in nineteen o six declaring their permanence and placing them three million three hundred and eighty thousand acres under the administration of the superintendent of forestry there are so far some twenty six dominion forest reserves created 
or in the act of creation compromising an area of over twenty five thousand square miles the forestry branch is making a brave beginning to survey and manage these reserves under forestry principles of the provinces ontario was the first to recognize the principle of reservations in eighteen ninety three when a partially cut over partially licensed territory of over one million acres was set aside as the algonquin national park in the nipissing district but the first definite establishment of a forest reserve policy dates from the forest reserve act passed in eighteen ninety eight which authorizes the executive as in the united states to withdraw lands for reserves some eight reserves and two parks have so far been established and the reserved area amounts to around twenty thousand square miles of management on forestry lines on these reserves there is far little to be heard except an effort to keep fires out quebec has followed this example of ontario first by setting aside the laurentides park in the saguenay region one million six hundred and thirty four thousand acres which like algonquin park was more in the nature of a game preserve during nineteen o six and seven however under a law authorizing the lieutenant governor to set aside forest reserves over one hundred million acres were placed in reserve apparently however no administration of this preserve in the forestry sense is as yet attempted british columbia which until lately was only concerned in disposing of the well-timbered crown lands after having disposed of the best parts has placed under reservation the balance and a forest commission of inquiry has been constituted to devise further measures in the interest of forestry its report appearing in nineteen eleven gives a very clear statement of conditions in the province and the promise of active organization of a better service of other attempts to foster forestry interest may be mentioned a law in quebec passed in eighteen eighty two providing a bonus of twelve dollars per acre for tree planting which seems to have remained without effect another providing for a diameter limit of twelve inches on the stump for pine and nine inches for other kinds these dimensions are now varied inaugurated in eighteen eighty eight may have preserved some young growth on the limits although since pulpwood is now the main product and supervision has been inefficient not much may be expected from such laws indeed the chief of the forest service reports that sixty per cent of the regeneration is of the inferior balsam fir in ontario a very competent commission was created in eighteen ninety seven with a noted lumberman mr bertram as president to formulate methods of reform but the able report remained barren of results the dominion has been active encouraging the dominion has been active in encouraging tree planting in the prairies the agricultural experiment station at ottawa not only set out object lessons by planting some twenty acres of sample plots but for a number of years distributed plant material to settlers this work was later taken over by the forestry branch and increased to a larger scale some eighty-five acres being in nursery and the distribution having grown to fifteen million seedlings in nineteen ten ontario under the direction of its department of agriculture and in cooperation with the agricultural college at guelph has lately embarked in two movements of amelioration namely establishing a state nursery from which plant material at cost with advice as to its use is given to farmers and purchasing and reforesting wastelands in the agricultural section tariff legislation is another means which is in the hands of the dominion government to be used for encouraging forest conservancy it has however so far not been used directly for such purpose fiscal and commercial policies being uppermost but the provinces have in this respect helped themselves by encouraging manufacture rather than export of raw materials ontario leading in this matter by prohibiting export of unmanufactured logs from crownlands in eighteen ninety eight other provinces impose an export duty on pulpwood cut on crownlands as does also ontario at present writing a reciprocity agreement with the united states is under contemplation 
which would admit wood products from Canada free of duty, an arrangement which, whatever its commercial advantages, bodes no good for conservative forest policy. Meanwhile, private limit holders here and there had begun to see the need of conservative methods, and by 1908 at least two large paper and pulp concerns had placed foresters in charge of their logging operations. 5. Education Until 1900, associated effort to advance forestry in Canada had relied on the International American Forestry Association. In that year, largely through the officials of the Dominion Forestry Branch, Mr. E. Stewart, the Canadian Forestry Association was formed. This association has grown more and more vigorous, and having escaped the period of sentimentalism which in the United States retarded the movement so long, could at once accentuate the economic point of view and bring the lumbermen into sympathy with their effort. In 1905, a quarterly magazine, the Canadian Forestry Journal, was started by the association, making its work of instruction and propaganda more effective. The technical literature, as yet slightly developed, is found mainly in bulletins of the forestry branch. A most promising convention held in January 1906, with the Premier of the Dominion presiding, participated by prominent officials and businessmen, seemed to foreshadow the time when a real rational forest management, at least in some parts of the Dominion, would be inaugurated. But it can hardly be said that the expectations were realized, and another such convention was held in 1911, which may perhaps be followed by better results. In 1909, following the precedent of the United States, a conservation commission was appointed for the Dominion under federal support, manned by the leading officials and prominent representative men from all provinces, and here the forestry interests may find at least educational advancement. The first two years of the existence of this commission have, however, produced little advancement. While the Ontario government had directly discredited the forestry movement by abolishing its Bureau of Forestry, indirectly it laid the foundation for a sure future, in 1907, by establishing in its provincial university at Toronto a faculty of forestry, with full equipment. A year later, the province of New Brunswick also established a chair of forestry in its university, while well, sometime earlier the Guelph Agricultural College had introduced the subject of farm forestry in its curricula. The latest development in educational direction is the forest school organized in 1910 by the Government of Quebec in connection with its forest service for the purpose of educating its own agents. End of Section 25 Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio interfaceaudio.com A Brief 